Welcome to the Living with Fire podcast, where we share stories and resources to help you live more safely with wildfire. Hi, I'm Megan Kay, your host and outreach coordinator for the Living with Fire program. And I'm joined today by Jamie Royce Gomes, my boss, manager of the Living with Fire program. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Megan. We're here to talk about our interview with Paul Peterson, Nevada State Fire Management Officer with the Bureau of Land Management in Nevada, and Gwen Sanchez, Fire Management Officer of the Humboldt-Toyabe National Forest. We got to talk with these two folks about fire management in Nevada because they both are fire management officers. And I um, recently met them in my position as outreach coordinator. I've been with the program for about a year and a half. But Jamie, you've had the opportunity to work with Gwen and Paul for a while. Um, so I really just valued your input on the interview and I wanted to get your take on what they said and what, you know, get a little preview of what the listeners can look forward to. Um, you know, I actually, I, I, Gwen started, um, relatively recently. I, I haven't met her until, um, the summer of 2021. Um, but Paul, um, yeah, I've worked with Paul for a few years. Um, and these are awesome partners of ours. Um, it was great to listen to these federal partners about, uh, fire management in Nevada. Um, you know, one thing that really struck a chord with me, which I thought was really interesting was, um, when Gwen had crunched some numbers and talked about the main cause of wildfire. <clears throat> so in national at a national level, 80% of wildfires are caused by humans and 20% are um, caused by natural causes like lightning. And the inverse is true for Nevada, where 40% of wildfires are caused by humans and 60% is um, occurs from natural occurrences. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, of course, wanted to analyze that and figure out, well, well why? why? Why is it so different? <laughs> Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, it's like, I just want to toot my partner's horns. Like everybody does such a great job on prevention that that's why the human causes are down. I don't know. I'm sure there's a I lot know, of parameters in there. I know we should have asked that question in the moment. Why didn't we do it? But, um, I, I guess like we can speculate that maybe it's because Nevada has so much public land. It's like 85%, um, publicly or, you know, federally owned. So there's just not as many people on the land as maybe like other states, but yeah, those numbers are pretty pretty crazy and i like when she went a little bit further this is a little bit of a spoiler because it's a really good quote of hers but and she just talked about uh, resources and fire response and just laid it out plain and simple with fire prevention which you know the idea that if you you know if you have this insane amount of fires that are human caused that's uh, a lot of time and energy and money spent on fire response instead of um proactive like risk fuels mitigation projects so she she basically said like hey if you guys start less fires we can restore these forests and these these rangelands a little bit more because we'll have the resources but they they don't really have the resources when they're stretched so thin responding to all these kind of fires that are started by target shooting or chain dragging (laughs) you know or just all the all the ways that humans cause fires in the landscape and it was i thought that that really sunk in and it made me think twice about (laughs) i mean i don't really do that many uh things on the landscape that can start a fire but i do like to camp and do have uh like like enjoy a campfire so i'm definitely making sure i'm bringing enough water 
to douse that campfire. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen and Paul, for that. <laughs> it just really um, resonated with me, the, the interagency um, collaboration oh, that they have yeah. in, in the state of Nevada, um, and that is key, and um, partners do such a great job at it. Something that I thought was interesting, too, was how the different strategies are all integrated. So you have, like, fire response with your... Um, your crews and your engines that are going out to respond to fire, but pretty much right behind them, they're doing mitigation work as if the, if they have the resources or not mitigation, yeah, mitigation and restoration work. So if there's a fire, they're always thinking about next steps. And I think that's a really uh, interesting way of thinking about it. I don't think uh, residents and individuals realize that, that these agencies are thinking ahead. It just kind of, these actions take a long time. So that was, I, I really liked the way they laid that out. Yeah, so up next in the interview, Gwen Sanchez and Paul Peterson. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Kay, the Outreach Coordinator for the Living with Fire program. And today I am joined by Paul Peterson, the Nevada State Fire Management Officer with the BLM, and Gwen Sanchez, the Fire Management Officer for U.S. Forest Service Humboldt Toyabe National Forest. Thank you guys for being here, Gwen and Paul. Um, before we begin uh, with the questions, do you guys mind introducing yourselves? We'll start with Gwen. Can you kind of tell us about what you do? Yeah, hi, my name again is Gwen Sanchez, and uh, being the fire management officer for the uh, humble Toyabi, I oversee the uh, fire, aviation, and fuels program across the state of Nevada and parts of California. And so it's a, a matter of coordinating those efforts, not only across the forest, but in an interagency um, fashion to make sure that uh, all of those efforts are, are uh, unified within our partners, um, interest groups, uh, different, um, you know, interagency partnerships to, to make sure that we've got that coordinated effort across our landscapes. And then, uh, Paul, what does your position look like at BLM? So thank you. So Paul Peterson, State Fire Management Officer for BLM Nevada. And similar to Gwen, manage fire preparedness, suppression, hazardous fuels, emergency stabilization and rehab, rehabilitation, uh, fire prevention efforts across BLM and BIA managed lands within Nevada. And that, uh, that includes not only working on an agency basis, but definitely on an interagency basis. Uh, with all of our partners, both federal, state, and local fire departments. Awesome. And then for folks who aren't uh, familiar with the the landscape, could you guys maybe just briefly describe where the lands are that you manage? Yeah, so uh, I oversee lands that are administered by the Humboldt Toyabe National Forest. Uh, some of those lands, the majority of them um, are dispersed across Nevada, and uh, we do have um, some lands along the Sierra front that do fall into California. And so uh, a lot more of the area that we're administering um, on the Humboldt Toyabe 
is uh, more overstory type of uh, vegetation. Uh, we do have some, some trees, higher elevation uh, type of scenarios. Okay. And so as you uh, move across Nevada, um, it is very, um, you know, hit and miss uh, checkerboard uh, between BLM and, um, you know, U.S. Forest Service lands. And so there is a lot of coordination that has to happen just because of, um, you know, the variation as you go across the state. Paul, can you kind of give us an overview of the BLM land in Nevada? So BLM land is a little bit right about 47.3 million acres. And it is roughly 67% of all lands that are within Nevada. And it ranges, there's BLM land in every single county um, across Nevada. And it ranges from annual and perennial grasslands to sagebrush, sagebrush steppe, pinyon juniper, uh, and then timber types on, on higher elevations. Thanks, Paul. I'll have more questions about those fields in a bit. Right now, I wanted to ask about what your agencies do to respond to wildfires when they happen. So, you know, wildfire knows no boundaries and it doesn't have the consideration to either start on public or private land. Um, and it, it really depends on where it is across the state. But, you know, we work in conjunction with all of our cooperators and partners to, to respond to wildland fires using closest resources that are available. And, you know, we, we work in, in conjunction with work, our cooperators to suppress the fire in an effective manner using fire engines, dozers, aircraft, helicopters, hand crews, and whatever else is out there. So our, our uh, effort is coordinated across the state and really across the country, right? So, so what Paul said is 100% is spot on. Um, it doesn't matter what color of engine or where the fire starts, we're going to send the closest resource to that fire to start engaging that fire the quickest, right? So our our goal um, across our interagency partners ourselves uh, is to keep fires small to the smallest degree possible, and to try to uh, minimize the impacts that that those um, unplanned ignitions have across our landscapes, right? And so um, we we don't care uh, necessarily. Uh, what agency the fire started on, we're sending the closest resources to try to be as efficient and effective as possible in putting those fires out. Uh, in addition to that, I'll take it one step further. Uh, both of our agencies work in a um, fashion where we not only support local uh, jurisdictions and, and our local um, agency lands, but we also, uh, if we have um, the ability to, and we have excess resources locally, if our conditions are such that we can support efforts nationally. Uh, we will mobilize uh, resources nationally to support, um, you know, larger incidents across uh, the country. And so, our firefighters are trained uh, not only to support and and uh, you know look at fires locally, but also in an interagency um, fashion to support uh, incidents across the country. Uh, I'll take that one step further. We we also um, support. Uh, different requests that come down, maybe through FEMA, uh, vaccination centers, we do hurricane support, we've done a lot of different support outside of just suppression. And so our firefighters are are some of the most uh, well-trained, uh, well-rounded, you know, personnel that, that you'll run across. So you mentioned how your agencies respond to unplanned ignitions, but I wanted to address the role of natural fire in the Nevada landscape. Paul, can you describe when fire is beneficial to the ecosystem? 
You bet. So, you know, obviously fire has been on the landscape for a long time, longer than, than we've been here. And, you know, most of our, our fires historically have been natural caused from predominantly lightning, mostly lightning. And, you know, it did fires in the natural ecosystem, you know, burns off uh, any of the, uh, the old grasses, burns off some of the, the, the old brush and rejuvenates a lot of the rangelands that are out there. Um, unfortunately, you know, since it is a natural part of the ecosystem, as you have repeated burns in, in different areas, it does affect the soil, it does affect the vegetation type. That's one of the reasons why either doing fire rehabilitation, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and or uh, effective fire suppression. Yeah, and then in the Humboldt Toyabe, um, what, what do you, how would you describe the, the role of fire in the ecosystem there, Gwen? I, I absolutely agree with uh, everything, you know, Paul said. It, it's uh, It's been here a long time before we have been here. Uh, there's a lot of positive objectives that come from uh, fire across our landscapes. You know, it uh, definitely reduces further uh, or future fire risk. Uh, if we can eliminate some of the fuels uh, up front, it's, uh, you know, has the ability to to help us when we are engaging in fires, um, fire suppression, to, to be able to use uh, those fire scars to our advantage. Uh, it helps with, you know, resiliency within our vegetation, just with that uh, nutrient cycling and, and trying to, you know, get some of those nutrients back into the soils. Uh, helps with, you know, water health and increasing the health of our, our water systems, which a lot of the water that comes across, especially in the Great Basin, uh, comes off of our lands. And so we want to make sure that we're maintaining the health of that uh, water system and just overall ecological function. And so I think the important part is, uh, from, from my agency's perspective, is uh, there are fires that are unplanned that are not under the right conditions that we do need to suppress. And then there is good fire. There are fires that we intentionally set through the use of prescribed fire programs. And we do have that across the entire state. And there are fires that are naturally ignited that uh, as a US Forest Service agency, uh, we consider using those fires um, because we, we feel that the benefits of monitoring that fire across the landscape actually is worth the benefit versus putting that fire out um, for a lot of reasons, the reasons that I just mentioned. And so I think that it's a fine balance between, um, you know, playing and understanding the risk that we're taking on associated with every single incident and ignition and um, really trying to work hard to put the fires out that present a risk to our communities and to maybe allow fire to play some natural role, even in an uh, unplanned scenario, but especially in a planned event like a prescribed fire event. Communities located in wildfire-prone areas need to take extra measures to live safely. There are many ways to prepare communities and properties for wildfire, including creating and maintaining adequate defensible space and hardening homes to withstand wildfire. This could mean altering or replacing certain components of the home. Our Wildfire Home Retrofit Guide will help you better prepare your home and communities for wildfire. You can find the guide in the resources section of our website at livingwithfire.com.
I'd like to quickly unpack what you meant when you mentioned resiliency in the landscape. What is a resilient landscape? This could be a whole podcast on itself of really, you know, exactly. what is a resilient landscape and and what is that difference between the rangeland, forest, and then if you throw a wildland-urban interface in the mix, you, know, you, you probably have your own uh, podcast series um, that we could talk about. Inspiration right, for yeah. next season. <laughs> <clears throat> exactly. And so, you know, really focused on what is a resilient landscape, and I'll, I'll focus on non-wildland-urban uh, interface areas. So in, in the rangeland, it is, you know, it's an area that can support fire without adverse impacts to the land. And so if that is a, an area where you know, we can get rid of some, some grass or brush, that really makes a resilient landscape. Uh, and then moving into the wildland urban interface, when we talk about resiliency, you know, encouraging homeowners to have that defensible space and you know, planting uh, planting and or removing plants that, you know, will help their home become more resilient. And so having, uh, you know, 30 foot clearance, uh, removing overhead branches and having grasses that are in there that, that hold the moisture a little bit longer to support that um, resiliency within the wildland urban interface. Awesome. Thanks for going on that detour with me. You bet. Um, yeah. Without a <laughs> does, anybody, <laughs> no, does anybody else want to add anything or um if not then i i, I just want to kind of dive into uh what are the main causes of wildfires so like paul said earlier uh wildfire has played fire has played um a role in our landscape um a lot, lot longer than than we've been you know across our landscapes and so it's historically always been here um, I just worked with a uh, news station out of uh, Las Vegas a couple weeks ago, and so I did some number crunching to see uh, where we're at. Uh, nationally, not specific to Nevada, but nationally, about 80% of our fires are human-caused and 20% are natural type of ignitions. Within Nevada, that number is lower, uh, which is a great thing, but still 40% of our fires across Nevada, you know, plus or minus a, a few percentages, depending on the year. But if you look at a 10 year average, it's over 40% of our fires are human caused, 60% um, natural ignition. And so I do think that we still have a long ways to go in order to try to help not only educate, but prevent those unwanted fires. Um, you know, a lot of times those are the fires that that do cause us, um, you know, a lot of suppression issues and resistance to suppression and, um, you know, are not always the fires that, uh, you know, come with moisture uh, or, you know, have some sort of natural suppression, uh, you know, roll around them uh, within the environment. And so they they become problematic a lot of times. And so I think it's really important that as we have this uh, fire conversation, uh, we not only talk about, you know, suppressing fires, but we also talk about uh, what people can do to help this larger cause. For every one of those, you know, fires that we have to respond to that are not naturally ignited, it just takes those resources away from, you know, what really we could be doing, either on the suppression um, perspective or a fuels perspective or a training perspective or, or you name it, right? And so uh, just think about what we could be doing if we had 80% less fires nationally or even 40% less fires across the state. It's a pretty 
impressive numbers. Yeah, that's definitely something to think about. All the the fuels mitigation or, you know, fuels projects and that you could be doing. We'll go to the Paul for the next one to start the next one. Um, what does the BLM do? Like what kind of efforts do you engage in to prevent these human caused ignitions? So we have a couple different fire prevention efforts that, that we have focused on. One is the, the one less spark campaign. And it is, it's focused at, you know, whether that is, a recreation, or whether that is grazing, or whether that is, uh, you know, off-road vehicles on, on public lands, and it is it is focused on doing your part and try, you know, being responsible, picking up trailer chains, you know, not leaving campfires, uh, no open fires, that type of stuff, um, to to reduce the threat of of human-caused fires. We have also uh, done a campaign where it's called the Take Aim campaign, and it's focused on shooting on public lands. and And we greatly uh, value our, our public lands and the ability to recreate on them. Uh, we have seen a, an increase probably in the last ten years of shooting caused fires, uh, whether that is from metal uh, metal tip bullets, steel co- steel jacketed bullets, or uh, exploding targets. And, you know, that, that's fine to shoot, you know, on public lands, but, you know, where you're shooting at, you want to make sure that you have a, uh, you know, an area that's free of vegetation. And so we have, we've partnered with gun stores and outdoor stores. We have, we've had targets made that you can shoot at our targets all you want. And at the bottom, it has a, a bunch of tips of what you can do to help prevent wildland fires. And so between those two, we have really focused on that. Uh, trying to minimize those human-caused fires. And then, Gwen, did you do you uh, want to describe the, what the Forest Service does to m- minimize those fires? Yeah. So a lot of the efforts that Paul just talked about um, are interagency efforts, right? And so again, we, regardless of where the fires start, uh, we share them, and and so we also feel it's important that we share trying to prevent fires. Um, one thing that is uh, really exciting that's coming up here uh, the 1st of May is uh, we are partnering, uh, the Forest Service, BLM, and some of our other interagency partners on a, a statewide fire prevention tour to kick off our uh, fire prevention awareness for the summer. And we're going to be visiting communities across the state of Nevada to just try to uh, educate people on you know, how to be fire safe how to do exactly the things that Paul had just discussed, um, you know, what they can do to help prevent fires as we start to get into the summer months. Um, last year was a, a heavy fire lift for us. And, you know, there was a, we had a really active fire season. And so we partnered on numerous occasions, uh, bringing additional support in from across the country to uh, just have more people in and around campgrounds to have more people in and around areas where we know that, uh, you know, we have those, those people shooting in and around, uh, you know, areas that just are high public, high visibility areas, just to try to encourage and, and teach people um, what to do to prevent that. Um, I don't know that there's, you know, very many of those people that are out to intentionally do harm. I think a lot of it is just, they just don't know. The other part that that we really kind of struggled with with last year is we had a lot of new users to our federal lands and to uh, just recreation in general. And so just how do we reach those new users and how do we, 
you know, continue to spread the message about how to prevent wildfires. And so uh, we work really closely and and year round um, on this effort, trying to just reach people and educate people. It's a full time job, really important to both our agencies. And and uh, yeah, it's um, it's something that I'm proud of uh, specifically for what we've done across Nevada. And is that because of COVID that you had all those users, those new users, because they are, you know, can't go anywhere else, so might as well go outside? Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's probably a lot to that. I, I have not, you know, asked that question. And I don't know that for a fact. But when you're not able to uh, go in and around uh, your communities, um, people get pretty sick of being at home. And so what better way to get outside and, and out of your house than to go to the public lands and recreate and just get away from, you know, your house. And so I do think that the increases that we saw were definitely tied to the pandemic. And, and I would think that we're, we're likely going to see, uh, you know, a similar use this summer as we continue to be, um, you know, distanced in our um, communities and, and in and around our towns. Hey guys, Jamie Royce Gums with the Living with Fire program. I am really glad, Gwen, that you mentioned the prevention team. Right now, I am knee-deep in webinar alligators, figuring out a a group series that is going to go on this summer with Living with Fire. And so we actually have a fire investigator from BLM who's going to go over a a fire that he investigated, and then he's going to bring on another person from the prevention team to to talk about, you know, the risks of causing a a fire and, and the ramifications that happens if you do cause a wildfire and what you can do to prevent such from occurring. So it's just yet another great great thing that the prevention team is doing around Nevada. And you will be on that prevention team. I, I, I don't know if I can. Um, we actually have uh, an issue of like being in person right now with the, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> I like how he didn't even ask. He's like, and you will be on the prevention team. <laughs> Just volunteering people. Thanks for mentioning that, Jamie. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that webinar. I've never, I, I have never, talk to anybody about a fire investigation and i think it would be really great to understand how those work so besides so you guys have this educational campaign which is very important but you also um do impose fire restrictions on public lands during the hot months can you guys um describe what those look like and what people can expect when those are in place so there's a couple different things that really drive when we would use fire restrictions or not. And, um, you know, a couple of those is looking at what our fuel load looks like on the ground. And then also what our fire danger looks like on the ground. And, you know, if we have, you know, as approaching into high fire danger, you know, 4th of July, middle of August or something like that, um, where we are seeing high susceptibility for ignitions, then we might enter into fire restrictions. And, you know, last year we did it on a, on a statewide basis, which is the first time that we did that. Uh, but usually it is really based upon the individual BLM district or forest service ranger district um, zone where they go into fire restrictions. Because as we, as we move throughout the state, there's a lot of variability in not only vegetation, but also, uh, you know, fire danger and, so we have to we have to tailor that um, so so we don't impact the entire state at once. Um, you know, quite often Southern Nevada will go into fire restrictions first, based upon what their indices are, and what their vegetation is, 
And that wouldn't make sense to do the same thing in Elko, where it's still green like Ireland up there. So we have to really tailor it. Um, and what we do is we, we look at what are the conditions, what are what are likelihood of public that are out there, and we tailor those fire restrictions or fire prevention orders to match that. And we might uh, we might ban campfires depending on what it is. Uh, could be uh, shooting explosive targets. Could be you know lighting dynamite on public lands. Um, you know open welding, grinding. You know that type of stuff. And so depending on on what we're seeing as far as the indices and or activities that are out there and the risk that they might cause a fire, we might uh, enter into fire restrictions. And, and we do that you know, somewhere in the state on an annual basis is enter into fire restrictions to reduce that risk to, to other general public and or communities. So two questions. First, how, how, would, how do people um, learn about the fire restrictions? Like where do they go to know which lands are under a fire restriction? So we have, we do press releases. Uh, so you pick your pick your favorite press source and you can probably find it there. The best way to find it is through Nevada Fire Info. And through Nevada Fire Info, we have all of our current fire information and fire restrictions that are on there. And second question, why would anybody be using dynamite on public lands? <laughs> Sorry, that really... There is, well, there is all, good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's... There's generally a reason for a rule that's put in place is because somebody's broken, right? Yeah. Uh, and really, what it is is we're when we enter into fire restrictions, we are looking at is what type of ignition sources that are out there, and is there ways that we can prevent those uh, ignition sources? Awesome. And then so uh, it because NevadaFireInfo.com is an interagency effort, right? So are those fire are the Humboldt Toyobi fire restrictions going to be on there as well, Gwen? Yeah, it is in our agency. And so all the different agencies have access to that. And last year, um, you know, if you'd have went there, you'd have seen restrictions for the Humboldt Toyabi, you'd have seen restrictions for the BLM. And we also work really hard, depending on the why, um, you know, and, and sometimes the need, uh, we may go into statewide restrictions where we are um, you know, across multiple agencies and aligning that. We did that last year as a result of, of COVID. Um, I think about the mid-April, first part of May or so, where we actually did go into statewide restrictions on an interagency basis just to try to reduce, um, you know, and, and help with the uh, human-caused buyers in that early season. And so we are all very active. There's a lot of information on there. Uh, we're working to do, you know, like an FAQ right now for restrictions because there's just so many questions and and it's not one size fits all and it's not always the same. And so we've got, you know, level one restrictions all the way to level three restrictions. And depending on which level we are, it, you know, limits different activities. And so I would encourage all of our publics to go look at that if you haven't already. Lots of in information on that website. And we, we uh, hope to continue to provide information to that on an interagency basis um, so that you can go there and also get links to other agency information um, from that one-stop shop site. Eighty-four percent of wildfires nationwide are caused by people. If you're planning on heading out and enjoying public lands, visit NevadaFireInfo.org and learn how you can recreate responsibly and do your part to prevent wildfires.
Let's move into talking about some of the rehab efforts that you guys do after after fires happen. So after a fire occurs, um, what what do those rehab efforts look like? And also just uh, maybe for folks who don't understand the term rehabilitation, uh, maybe dive into that a little bit. Um, and do we, Gwen, do you want to go first? Um, yeah, definitely. So, so rehabilitation, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard one because again, it's not one size fits all and it really depends on, on the type of fire and the train and, and the location and the vegetation. And there's so many things that go into that, right. Uh, for, for the forest service, a lot of it has to do, um, with stabilization and just making sure that the area um, has a way to not be further impacted, depending on if we get, you know, rains or or whatever might come after that. And so as soon as we, and actually during the process of, of you know, putting a fire out and igniting a fire, once we have that fire to a point where uh, we feel safe within certain areas, we will bring in specialists to come examine the area and see what sort of, um, you know, rehabilitation efforts need to be made in order to, um, you know, stabilize and prevent that area from further impacts to, you know, whatever mother nature might give them at, at whatever point. And so uh, we will bring hydrologists in, we'll bring soil um, scientists in, we will bring, you know, just different specialists that we see, um, depending on what might be present. Uh, last year, we had a fire in the um, Southern Sierra area, the Slink fire, and we had a very um, specific type of um, fish in that area. And so we brought in a fish biologist specific to that area just to make sure that uh, we weren't missing something that we were needing to do in order to protect that uh, very unique species to that area. And so we will do different things depending on where we're at, what our uh, areas of concern are, what um, do we have any threatened or endangered species in an area that we need to be very cautious about? Um, and what 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 might we need to do in order to protect those uh, ecosystems from any further damage? And so that's really the way that we look at that. Uh, we bring in those specialists. It usually takes you know anywhere from a couple weeks to a couple months, depending on the incident and the size and how many um, you know of those uh, very unique ecosystems we need to look at. And um, at that point, we will. Uh, submit a report and, um, you know, see what we can do to get additional funding. And that funding is above and beyond what we currently get funded for. It's part of an emergency response funding in order to do some of that uh, rehabilitation across the landscape. And then, so Paul, why why is rehabilitation needed? Like, so what would happen if you didn't rehabilitate the landscape after a fire? So as Gwen said, it, it really depends on the area. And it could be as simple as if it's in a watershed, uh, a community watershed. So there's, you know, quite a few communities that are across the state. They they might get their water from a creek source uh, and or ground wells. And if if we have a fire in that area and it slicks off the vegetation, we just have a bunch of ash and silt that is there that could totally impact the, the community. It could also impact uh, debris flows. And so like south of Carson City and Gardnerville area and the Pine Nuts, there's been a couple of fires. And in the fall, they get uh, some big storms and can create huge debris flows, which can also clog up 
either the, the potable drinking system and or the wastewater system, the storm drain system. So trying to minimize that the soil movement uh, more than anything else. And that could be that could be accomplished through some some interim steps of you know, straw wattles or you know some some vegetation that is down there to maintain that soil in place, but then doing some seeding on top of that. Um, and then hope, uh, hopefully we have a, a wet winter where we have some grass growth and it can stabilize that soil. So not only to, to prevent that soil movement uh, and erosion, but also to start rehabilitating the landscape and bringing back um, good grasses that are in there. Awesome. And then Gwen, you mentioned the, the slink fire. Do you have any other uh, highlights or projects that you're working on right now that you want to talk about rehabilitation projects? Um, yeah, so a lot of the large fires that we had um, from last year, uh, we have worked on, you know, rehabilitation efforts um, over the last few months and through the winter. Uh, we just recently uh, got done doing some aerial reseeding on the uh, Poville fire, you know, in the higher elevations. And, and again, you know, as Paul mentioned, that, that was just to uh, try to get regrowth in the area to prevent movement or, or large runoff. Um, from impacting, um, you know, the, the communities um, in and around uh, Reno and, and that may have been affected by, you know, the pole wheel fire. And so uh, we will bring in um, any sort of, of uh, we will bring in Bear and, and Bear is a, a burned area emergency rehabilitation team. So we will bring in a team anytime there's, you know, more than, than a couple hundred acres on a fire and anytime we see, you know, a specialist sees that there's there's any potential um, for, you know, those different environments to be impacted, we will bring in a team to do that assessment and see what that is. We have ongoing efforts across uh, multiple fires happening right now. Um, like I said, Poville, Slink, we've got efforts down happening on the Mahogany Fire in Southern um, Nevada in the Las Vegas area. We've got efforts happening across um, the state right now. Uh, to to work on that rehabilitation uh, of those large fires from last year. And is it the same personnel that are doing the wildfire response or the, are the, the firefighters? Or I mean, you mentioned there's the bear team, but uh, so are, I guess the question is, um, do your firefighters stay on year round to help with those rehabilitation efforts? So we do have firefighters that do stay on year round. Um, it kind of depends again on, on what that rehabilitation effort um, may include. You know, if, if we need people to be in on the ground and, and rehabbing uh, dozer lines, for instance, to make sure that, that you know, we've got material pulled back onto those lines and that we've got, uh, you know, area for, for that water to run off and it's not going to run down dozer lines and, you know, make big divots in, in do existing do dozer lines, then we will utilize those crews in order to, to do that. And a lot of times that effort's being done you know, before the fire, uh, you know, is even over. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot of that as we can, um, as soon as the um, fire activity um, allows us to do that effort. And so it is kind of ongoing, really, from the beginning of the incident, we start to look at that and consider those needs, um, clear through sometimes uh, several years later, uh, our our folks, you know, will sometimes work on on those projects, you know, three, five, ten years down the road, depending on, you know, what that need is on that specific incident. 
Uh, sometimes it's contract work. Um, sometimes it is, you know, internal, our folks that are doing that work. Uh, what, what I think is important is that um, we are bringing in specialists that understand the soil, that understand the, the biology, that understand, you know, fish habitats, that understand all of those different specialty areas to be able to help us in make, making those decisions and those recommendations. And then from that point, once we get those recommendations and, and decisions approved, then we'll we'll either contract that work out or we'll do some of that work um, ourselves, depending on what we have the capacity to do. And then, Paul, do you have any highlights um, on BLM, BLM land that you'd like to talk about or projects going on? Yeah, so virtually every one of our fires, I guess not virtually, we've been doing too much virtually over the last year, uh, we, we rehabilitate every fire that, that we have. There's very few that, that we don't. And so, you know, every single year we have a, a rehabilitation program and we do have, we've got dedicated individuals that are, that are with that. But you know, as Gwen said, you know, some of our firefighters and fire crews, they do participate in the operational aspect of uh, implementation of that. Uh, you know, probably a, a couple different ones that uh, is Martin Fire. And so the Martin Fire, that's the largest fire entirely within Nevada a couple of years ago. And so we're still working on rehabilitation on that. Uh, and it is everything from aerial seeding to drill seeding, uh, herbicide treatments. Uh, one of our partners is Nevada Department of Wildlife, and they have been a huge asset for us uh, helping with some of the seeding, aerial seeding, and, and providing some of the seed uh, for, for wildlife benefit and you know, just to, to maintain the, the soil that's out there. Um, yeah, and so that's that's probably the the biggest one that, that we're still continuing to work on. But you know, we we do work on on almost every fire that we have. And there's some type of rehabilitation with that. And I'd imagine with the frequency of these fires, you're probably having fires burn in your rehabilitation projects too, which can be. I don't know. I don't yeah, know how that and so that is that's a, that's definitely one thing. You know, if if we're investing, you know, a million dollars or so in rehabilitation of a fire. You know, we want to protect that investment as well. And so sometimes as we're as we're re, as we're building those rehabilitation treatments, we might also build in some hazardous fuels treatments that are in there as well as putting some some crested wheat grasses or something alongside the roadside to, to something that's going to hold the, the moisture a little bit more uh, and provide a little bit more resiliency. And so trying to trying to keep the investment and trying to make that, that landscape more resilient, as we talked about also. Awesome. Um, well, thank you guys for letting me pick your brains for 45 minutes um, and for joining us. And I just wanted to open it up and see if uh, anybody else had any questions. Now, you guys keep bringing up stuff from our webinars, which is really <laughs> awesome. Syner synergy. I know, right? We are actually going to be having um, an after the fire rehabilitation webinar. It's going to feature somebody from NDF and somebody from um, NDOW, Nevada Department of Wildlife, and they're going to be talking about reseeding a, a fire that I believe that the Humboldt Toyabi has contracted with, which is kind of cool. So um, that's going to be happening in September, I believe, but don't quote me. But, you know, I actually thought about this. Now, I have, I'm going to switch gears on you guys. I have never worked in another state regarding wildfire preparedness, but I have heard from folks that the interagency collaboration in Nevada is top notch. Now, I, I'm not asking either of you to talk trash about any other agencies in different states, but I was wondering if you guys could uh, attest to that, that, 
that piece of information that I heard? Well, uh, I've worked in Nevada my whole career, so I couldn't tell you about other states, but I've heard stories. Uh, you know, the, what I do know about Nevada, though, is Nevada is a huge state. And, you know, we can't, you know, one agency cannot do it by themselves. Not one fire department can do it by themselves. And so, you know, it, it's not that we're forced to. It's the right thing to do is, is to work together to prevent wildfires and then also to suppress wildfires. And, you know, if, if you don't get along, uh, you know, before the fire, you're not going to get along on the fire. And that's not a great spot to be in. And so, you know, we, we, have, we have great partnerships. We do a lot of work before and after the fire season, just to get ready for the fire season. And we are, we are in countless uh, planning sessions, working on agreements, working on strategies for fire prevention, working on strategies for hazardous fuels treatments, um, you know, year round to get to when the fire season is. And the fire season's getting longer and longer. And so we've got shorter time to plan. Uh, but it is, it's critical for us to have good partnerships to work across those boundaries. Gwen, do you have anything to add regarding that? Yeah, so, so I have worked in five different states and three different U.S. Forest Service regions, and uh, I am very, very thankful and, and just proud to be in Nevada. Um, it, when I came into Nevada, it was um, open arms. And, you know, the communication here is just um, top notch and, and our fire response here is top notch. And, and I just appreciate that interagency perspective and approach that we have here in Nevada. Um, you know, as you travel into other areas and um, it's not always like that. And sometimes there's a lot of ego in the way. Sometimes there's a lot of you know pride in in your single agency that's in the way and and um, I just don't see that here um, like I have in other areas of the country that that I have worked. Uh, it's pretty rare that um, I'll go a week without talking to to Paul. Um, I talk to him probably as much, if not more, than some of my own staff within you know my agency. And so it's it's a really cool relationship we have here. Um, in addition, we've got a lot of really active groups, you know, the Northern Nevada Fire Chiefs group, we've got the Sierra Front Fire Chiefs, we've got, you know, fire chiefs that are within Tahoe. And so a lot of people um, recognize, and I can't say it enough, um, none of us can do it alone. This is having to be an interagency um, approach, or none of us would be successful. Our success comes because we're willing and able and, and all see the value in working together. And uh, that really is, um, you know, kind of the bottom line. And that's not just the federal agencies, that's our state and local partners as well. Those local fire chiefs are at the table, the state's at the table, the feds are at the table. And because of all that different level approach, really going towards those same common goals, it's just allowed for um, a lot of success on the ground. And so um, I've seen it work. And I've seen it work less than what it works here. And I'm really, really happy to be here, part of this team, because it's a high, highly functioning team. And uh, we've got great people that, that really just want everyone to be successful. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty cool relationship and a cool place to be.
Thank you for listening to the Living With Fire podcast. You can find more stories about wildfire and other resources at livingwithfire.com. The Living With Fire program is funded by the University of Nevada, Reno Extension, Nevada Division of Forestry, Bureau of Land Management, and the United States Forest Service. (laughs) 